All right, there we go. I still go. can't do this. No, yeah. Yeah, I'm technologically illiterate. <laughs> no, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> um, so thank you again for coming um, to this podcast, the social Manoa. Um, and sorry, did you want to introduce yourself first? Sure. Uh, so I'm a professor, uh, Ira, etc. I'm a member of the anthropology department in the College of Social Sciences. Yeah. All right. Thank you so awesome. much for the introduction. All right. So, Grin, did you want to go first? Sure. So we have prepared a few questions ahead of time for you, Dr. Setra. And so the first one is just, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you're from, where you went to school, and then what career paths you were thinking of pursuing? And I can go back through those later on if you just want to start with where you're from. Sure. So I, I was born and grew up in Orlando, Florida, um, but I did not like it, right? Disney World and all that was not my thing. So um, when I went off to college, I went to Scotland, to the University of St. Andrews. I wanted to get out of America. I wanted to do something completely different. Um, and so that was where I found anthropology. And so for my, for my master's in Scotland, your first degree is actually a master's degree. You go four years, you get a master's. And so I had to do field work and research. And so I went back to Florida and I did research at a spiritualist community, um, which is where everyone was a medium. And so I, I turned up, I said, look, I'm an anthropologist what should I do to become part of the community? And they said, oh, you should become a medium. So I trained to be a medium for several months, um, talked to spirits, it was wonderful. Um, they wanted me to stay on, but I said, thank you, I, I need to finish my degree. Um, yeah, <laughs> and after that, I, I moved up to Alaska and I worked there for a little while. Then I did my PhD in Australia with Aboriginal people. Um, then I, I lived here for a bit. I lived in New York City for a bit. I lived back in Alaska for a bit. Then I went to South Africa for two years and back to New York, then here, then while I've been here, I've gone back to South Africa, gone to Serbia, done some other things. So yeah, I've kind of been all over the place and anthropology has really given me the opportunity to do that. Oh my goodness. That is amazing. Yeah, it sounds like a real adventure. <laughs> it has so been. many. It's, it's been great. So I want How to many just... countries? Oh, sorry, Vanessa. No, 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 so no, sorry. Okay. No, no. <laughs> Zoom is like this. It's okay. You, you can... <laughs> um, how many places have you visited then if you were to add it all up? So countries, I have been in exactly 120 countries. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. That's awesome. And you went back to school. So master's was first because it's um, automatically in a four-year degree in Scotland, you're saying. And then yeah, yeah. you went back for your PhD in anthropology as well. That's right, in, in Australia. Yeah. Awesome. With Aboriginal peoples. That's amazing. Yeah. What part of Australia? It's such a huge... Continent so I, Island. I went, I went to university at the Australian National University in Canberra, and I did my field work in the Northern Territory in a community called Lachamanu. It's about halfway between Alice Springs and Darwin, right on the border with Western Australia. So if I wanted to go see a movie, I had in a movie theater, I had to drive 450 miles. If I oh wanted God. to, yeah, if I wanted to go to a grocery store, uh, I had to drive 300 miles. Um, yeah, so it was 700 people in the middle of the desert. It was fantastic. That is awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> I was just really shocked. I mean, do a lot of anthropologists travel to like more than 120 countries or is that just something? <laughs> no, that, that, that's me. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm a bit unusual for anthropologists because most people work in one field site for a lot of their career. And sometimes later on they switch. I switched right after I finished my PhD. Um, and I've had, and so I work in three different countries um, 
I use six different languages in the field. Um, so it's really, so I'm, I'm a bit unusual in that way. I, I straddle a lot of different things, which, yeah, which, so no, 120 countries is not normal for an anthropologist. Uh, well, uh, wow. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, my eyes are popping. It's like, wow, I'm so shocked. <laughs> but oh my gosh, no, it's not, it's not a weird or a bad thing. I would say it's like a really, really great thing that you have all these experiences. Um, so I'm going to ask, um, so I understand that you're actually, so again, you're actually um, an expert in anthropology. So for those who actually are not too familiar with the field or, you know, anything really about anthropology, could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, your adventures or, you know, something about, you know, your research that you've been doing? Sure. So, so what I discovered, you know, doing, doing my MA and, and training to be a spiritualist, like that's what got me hooked in anthropology because like any job that will pay me to do this sign me up. And so, so the big thing in anthropology that we do, it's called participant observation, but really what it is is what we like to say is deep hanging out. So you want to just chill with people, right? And that's it. So I always say, I get to, my job is hanging out with groovy people around the world. That is what I do for a living. Um, and so, yeah, so when I was in Australia, I lived in this Aboriginal community for two and a half years. Um, I went, I was initiated into ceremony. I had a Hanai family. Um, all of that. Um, and then uh, in Serbia, I worked with um, Roma and Ashkali, who are pejoratively known as gypsies, um, not a good word to use, so say Roma. Um, and they, they were refugees. Um, they were living in, in basically slums. So I lived in a shack, a one-room shack, no running water, stolen electricity with 12 other people, and spent my days collecting trash out of dumpsters and recycling. Um, in South Africa, I spent time um, staying in a township. I work with um, gay Zimbabwean migrants there. Um, so staying in a township um, with these guys and hanging out with them um, and going to different different events. And so, yeah, so it, it's great. I mean, I, I don't just, I, we don't just do interviews, right? We spend time, we live with people. And I mm -hmm. you know, turn up as this very, this very white foreign guy and say, hey, um, do you mind if I like move in with you? And people are like, sure, why not? Um, and so it, it's amazing. And I have, you know, obviously lifelong relationships. I talk to everybody pretty much every week um, on the phone and keep in touch. The, the relationships that I've had with like people in Australia you now 25 years. So, so children that I named when they were babies are now adults and married and having their own kids. Um, so wow. you really wow. get to, it, it's a lifelong commitment and you get to have these amazing connections with people around the world. So it, it's a great discipline. Yeah, it really does seem like, um, you know, I, I, I love how, you know, so many people in multiple groups are just so accepting. Um, like, yeah. just, that's, uh, wow. <laughs> I am like, <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm so sorry. Um, but, yeah, I'm actually, that's, yeah, okay, sorry, Corinne, do you mind taking over? <laughs> no, yeah, no, that's so interesting. Could you really quickly explain what a township is? I'm not sure I even know. Sure. So um, under, well, even before apartheid in South Africa. So, so South Africa is based on white control of black labor, basically. And so what South Africa is known for, I think probably aside from all the racial tension, is that it is home to the largest gold reef in the world. So more gold than any place else. And so the white colonial government wanted black labor to mine the gold, right? And there's also a big diamond mine. And so South Africa became really dependent on black labor. Um, but white people did not want black people like interacting with them, even though they wanted to use their labor. And so townships were set up 
as kind of urban spaces for black people that were separated from white areas. So Cape Town is a good example, right? And, and, and there used to be a place called District 6. If you've seen the movie District 9, it's about this. Um, wonderful sci-fi movie that's actually about, it's about aliens. Something but, real. <laughs> yeah, but, but really it's about segregation in South Africa. And so there was this mixed community right on the border of like, like the kind of central downtown area. And they just decided it couldn't be mixed. It needed to be all white because it was close to downtown. So everybody who was black um, or colored because colored people and black people are different in South Africa, um, were, were moved away. And so the same thing for the whole country. Black people were given homelands in rural areas and that was considered separate from the country. There were white areas, there were black areas, there were colored areas, there were Indian areas. Um, and so, yeah, so townships are these things. So in Cape Town today, even though officially there, there is integration and you can live wherever you want to live because of economic disparities, a lot of people can't. So for me to visit my friends in the townships, is about a 40 minute ride on these, um, like they're called taxis, but they're like vans that, that work, that are kind of like buses that run these, these set routes. Um, and so it's expensive to get out there, it's expensive for them to come into work. And so there's this de facto segregation. And so violence in townships are, is endemic. So um, in Cape Town right now, it has, it's, I think it's the eighth most dangerous city in the world in terms of murders. Um, wow. So there, yeah, lots of shootings, um, violence, um, sexual assaults in the townships. But then, if you're in the white areas, it's much safer. And so there, there's this segregation. So, so when I was in Cape Town um, and doing my work and staying on the townships, lots of white people were really freaked out. They were like, "Oh, you're going to get killed. You're going to get murdered. What are you doing?" And and as far as I'm concerned, as a researcher, you know, like it's important to understand this and and, and to experience. To experience exactly. Um, so yeah, so so my friends in the township would say, you know, get on this taxi. Like, I did it. And they're like, wow, you're not, you know, you're not scared. And I'm like, no, it's okay. You know, I trust you. Um, and so that also creates rapport and yeah, and these really, these really um, good, good relationships. Yes, totally trust-based. And I think you as a yeah. researcher able to go into those places of maybe higher crime or higher risk, but just to do so because you know that it's necessary to yeah. be in the, and to make those real connections and to see what they're experiencing to accurately reflect on it. It's really brave, really. And that's right, because I think the whole thing with townships and with the segregation in this country too, right? Um, you know, don't go to that area because it's dangerous. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind, and I think it's important that we understand, right, the 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 the, the disadvantage and the inequality that pervades our world. And the only way we understand that is if we see it, we interact with people. Um, yeah, I, I just think that's that's critical. Definitely, I think yeah, I think that's why there's um, also some like debate about censorship and like if things should be censored, but if it's you know if it's something graphic, but also we can't truly experience things if they're maybe not visually. Uh, it's if it's not if we're not able to see it visually you know even if we're not there experiencing it firsthand anyways thank you very much um our next question is if you could please describe your teaching philosophy or some of your teaching tricks uh so uh i always i always say teaching is like stand-up right my, my 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 thing in class is you come for the anthropology you stay for the jokes so um, uh, yeah, no, I think I think teaching has to be interesting, and you you have to relate it to like what's happening in your world, and I think that's why anthropology is so cool because like that's what we do all the time. Um, it's like I do a lot of medical anthropology, um, so we get to talk about you know going to the doctor, and we we talk about stuff like like a good example of, of something that I do um, is uh, we talk about how gender 
and bodies and commodities all kind of get intertwined through things like sperm donation. And so in one class we get online, we go to a sperm bank and we look at profiles of sperm donors and talk about the kind of sperm we would like to buy if we're gonna buy it. And it's really interesting, like, like, it, like students, like we read the articles and we read about how like masculinity and heteronormativities and trenches, and then we get on their website and they're like, oh my goodness, it's, you know, like all these guys are, he's so dashing and, and his jacket is so well fitted and he loves his mother. And it's like all these stereotypes that are, that are there. And so stuff like that, I do in class a lot. Um, you know, I take classes to, to Japsum, to the cadaver lab. Um, we do, we watch, we watch lots of South Park. I love South Park. It's the most interesting <laughs> thing out there. Lots of South Park in class. Um, yeah, lots of stuff like that to, to just really let students connect. And then in a lot of my classes, students do projects where they can do their own field research. Um, so they can go out and do this stuff and write about whatever interests them. And yeah, I think, I think that's great. Oh my goodness. That kind of makes me want to take some of your classes. Like, <laughs> wow. And I was actually going to say something about sperm donation. Like I, that's, that's really interesting because it also kind of ties into like the whole entire, you know, genes and some people that's right. the debate of like, um, appearances, if you want to choose which one to which for your child, or whether that's considered ethical or not. That's, that's, that's so cool. Yeah. And the whole notion of ethnicity, like on the website, you can yeah. choose exactly what indigenous group you, like if you want Mohawk or, or I mean, it, those are those options. And it, it, and like what, what, like all the, all these different backgrounds and ethnicities and icons, all these Find distinctions that you can then sort by. Yeah, and, and the idea is that, you know, ethnicity and genes are two very different things, but yeah, it's conflated. And so medicine isn't so scientific. It's a lot of cultural and social stuff. And so that's that's one of the things I like to look at. Yeah, for sure. Really <laughs> very yeah. interesting. And also maybe interesting to make your students step out of their comfort zones a little bit. Most of my classes, you know, don't have me do that, but um to go and visit cadavers or to go onto websites and share your opinions about who you would want. So sorry, younger brother calling or to share your opinions about who you would want um, as like your child's dad, you know, but based on those yeah. cultural norms or anything related to that is very interesting. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah. So I guess like, I mean, I'm already engaged, but for students who are not, um, I mean, not, 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 I'm not, 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 not that they're not. So essentially, how do you students, particularly for those who are not majors or not? Yeah. So, so yeah, stuff like this. Like, I we we get a lot of non-majors, um, and and I teach a reasonable number of classes that don't have prereqs, um, and so yeah again i think it's making it interesting and showing that anthropology isn't just some some weird discipline that nobody's heard of that it actually does tell us a lot about who we are in the world we live in and that we can think about like everyday events anthropologically um and yeah and, and i also think that particularly in this in this day and age anthropology has a lot of really good tools for for understanding things like like disparities and inequalities um that that i think as a nation we're really grappling with um, so yeah, so, so engagement is around those things and then just teaching interesting subjects, right? Um, so, you know, I teach stuff on plastic surgery. I teach lots of interesting stuff on, on sexuality. I mean, we do a week on BDSM, um, which is great. Um, so yeah, stuff, stuff like that, 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 that really makes it relevant and that people, people can relate to. 
Awesome. A really expansive variety of, of topics and ways that you teach uh, different classes that maybe some teachers would want to do, but it's awesome. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, the next question is um, that asking that you are an author of multiple books, or I think you actually um, corrected me earlier and said monographs about people. Yeah. And if you could uh, just briefly maybe talk about um, your uh, monographs that you've written. Sure. So, so yeah, so I have three books. I've done three books, um, each one about three of my different field sites. Um, so the first one's about Australia, um, and it's called Illness is a Weapon. And it basically looks at why there are health disparities between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. So in the Northern Territory where I worked, there was a 20-year gap in life expectancy between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. 20-year difference. Yeah. Wow. And, and Aboriginal people receive free health care and free medicine. So it's not about technical access to care, it's all these other things. And so I look at like issues uh, around racism and exclusion and, and how that affects people's well-being. Um, and then um, the second book is uh, called Negotiating Pharmaceutical Uncertainty. And it's about a large clinical trial in South Africa testing a microbicide gel. So basically KY jelly with chemicals in it that women um, can insert vaginally to prevent HIV. Um, it, didn't, it didn't work, but I was on the trial. And what was really interesting, so, so in Australia, Aboriginal people were really like upset at the nurses and really kind of pushed back against biomedicine and cursed nurses. But we're in South Africa, people really embraced it. And so these women were talking about this gel as not just being a pharmaceutical, it was like being an aphrodisiac and we're using it all these different times and ways. I was interviewing one woman and she said to me, um, even now as I am talking to you, I have it inside me. I love that quote. Um, and, and so looking at how biomedicine becomes this tool, we, we call it um, biotechnical salvation, right? Um, to, to, to kind of give, empower women. And they talked about how biomedicine and the way they were able to manipulate it was empowering because the doctors didn't know what was going on, but they did. And so they were able to have amazing knowledge over and above what these kind of foreign white male researchers were having. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, and my third book is... Uh, Wastelands, and that's about my work in Serbia. Um, like I talked about earlier, scavenging um, with people for trash, um, living in this, this informal settlement. Awesome, thank you. And um, I guess that would also, sorry, the next question is me also. Could you go a little bit more into that that um, monograph on wastelands and talk to us about how they stole electricity or used electricity and how they made money per se or didn't make money and how um, that kind of ruled their lives maybe or, or something like that. I didn't get to read your book, but I did look a little bit into it. <laughs> sure, sure. So the folks I hang out with are um, Ashkali. And so um, they are originally from Kosovo. And there is this the whole complex story that I'm not gonna go into, but hopefully you folks have heard about the Kosovo war. Um, and so it used to be part of, of Yugoslavia and then Yugoslavia broke up and it was part of Serbia. And then there, so the majority of the population in Kosovo was al ethnically Albanian, not Serbian. And so they wanted self-determination and they eventually declared independence. But Ashkali, like Roma, um, are neither um, Serbian or Albanian. They were kind of cut, caught in the middle. And so there was all this violence and um, tens of thousands of, of their homes were burned. Uh, people were assaulted. And so lots of refugees left 
Kosovo and went to Serbia. And so those are the people I'm working with. And because they're refugees, well, they, they actually aren't refugees, they're considered internally displaced persons, um, but they have no ID. Um, and so they can't get jobs, they can't get welfare, they can't get houses, they can't be, do anything. The only thing they can do is be sent to prison. Nothing else, they can't get legally married, they can't get medical care because they have no ID. Wow. And so the only option really is to live in these informal settlements. So there's a piece of land that nobody's living on. So they go through the trash and get like plywood and old doors and construct a shack. And then for electricity, they wire the street lights that come on at night. So you get a wire, you run it through the bush. And then during the day when the street lights are off, you quick open up the panel, attach it. And then at night, hopefully when it comes on, it will give you electricity. That's only enough for like a TV and a cell phone. You can't have anything else. So no refrigerators, nothing like that. And then the running water you get down the street from a fire hydrant. You open up the fire hydrant and you get the water. Um, wow. And so I'm, I write about how people negotiate all of this. And, and one of the things that really struck me is that the first is a real, it's a real struggle, you know? And so we would go out and 90% of the food we ate was also from the trash. Um, so all the clothes we wore was from the trash, shoes from the trash, um, almost everything. Um, and especially at night, you know, people would be assaulted. One guy I know was stabbed. Um, and so there was this, this, this real kind of struggle for survival, but people talked about it as boring. I mean, they just, they were like, this is just every day. This is just what it is. Um, and I got, I got actually really sick. I actually had to leave early because I had this terrible um, infection and I took three courses of antibiotics that would not go away. And everybody was like, yeah, you're living in a shack. What did you think was gonna happen? We all have this, this is it. Um, but again, it was boring. And, and it wasn't something that, and the, the government is you know, tearing down shacks and evicting people and all this is going on. And people were just so used to it. And that's what, that, that's what I found really surprising. Um, and, and eventually, you know, I got used to it too. And like coming back, reading all my notes, the number of times that we were chased by skinheads or almost assaulted or our lives were put at risk, you just get used to it. And, and, and that, was, that was really amazing. Um, and so that's what I try to write about um, is, the, is, is the lives of, of these folks and, and their struggles to survive. And what is normal to them. Yeah. That is, yeah. yeah, such different norms in everyone's lives just based on your upbringing and everything. Wow, that is so interesting. Do they have any like options for immigration or citizenship or like emergency refugee status in other places or is there not many options? There, there are not many options in, in part because they don't have ID, but then, then Roma um, and Ashkali, right? It, it's the, they are the largest minority group in Europe. They're about nine, nine million across Europe. Um, and they, uh, they, they have been there for about a thousand years. And they are really, um, there's a great deal of prejudice against them. Um, uh, they are disliked, distrusted. They are rounded up during the, the, during the Holocaust, right? Jews were being sent to concentration camps. So were gay people, so were Roma. Um, and there were, the Holocaust was absolutely about trying to eradicate Roma. And so even today, when even if they can go to the EU, right? France is, is expelling Roma illegally. Uh, Slovakia is building walls around their settlements to try to, to try to contain them. Italy is monitoring them. So getting to another country, you still have this stigma of being Roma yes. um, or being a gypsy um, that, that, that people 
take with them. And so, you know, the, the folks I talked to that went to Germany, they're like, you know, we're treated the same everywhere. Like it doesn't help. Yeah, the money is better and you can earn more, but you still face all of these barriers. And that's the thing, the systematic discrimination and racism that happens in Europe around, around Roma. Thank you for explaining that in depth. Yeah, that sounds like, um, that, that, that's really saddening. And that actually kind of reminds me of some of the um, studies that, I, since I actually used to take anthropology, it kind of reminds me of the things I used to read in textbooks about like, you know, these ethical considerations that we have to consider when we study populations and, um, you know, just looking at like ethnocentrism and basically just looking at these vulnerable populations. Um, and yeah, th th thank you so much for sharing. Um, and, and I just I just want to say to all the listeners out there, just please avoid using the word gypsy if possible. It is an offensive word um, for many people, not not for all, but it is not it is not a, a happy word for most people. And I know in this country in particular, people kind of throw it around. And you know, Lady Gaga, you know, has the song, and you know, I'm nomadic, so I'm a gypsy. But it is actually a very highly problematic and quite offensive word. Um, that is about the misrecognition of people. Um, so yeah, so I would just urge everyone to please be careful about how you use that word. Yes, to all our viewers out there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for educating us. Yeah. As many, many things have different meanings in different places, but just, yeah, knowing the importance of the word to many people and that it is a negative implying word that should be replaced with something more descriptive or better terminology. So thank you. Yeah. Okay, so let me go on to my next question. So um, I remember actually taking Anthropology 410 back in like, was it freshman year already? Oh, okay, oh, it was freshman year. <laughs> and the ethics of anthropology. And like, honestly, it was like so much fun. Um, Cause I, like, again, like all the topics that you're talking about, it kind of also resonated with like a lot of the things that were happening in textbooks. And it, it honestly like kind of like made me remember books about like the spirit catching the, sorry, the spirit catches you and you fall down. Um, and also, you know, different studies about like um, Native Americans or um, like the African-American Tuskegee um, experiments. And yeah, and yeah I, I was just wanting to ask like, like how were you able to even approach all these different groups? Like, like what, is there like any tips on, you know, how you would even go about approaching these groups? Um, I would say, above all else, be really honest. Um, that, that was always my thing, right? Um, I was always very clear about kind of what I wanted to do and who I was as a, who I was as a person. Um, and yeah, I just always tried to be authentically me. Um, in fact, I can, I can tell you actually a story how I first got in with Ashkali. Um, so I was in, in Serbia, in Belgrade, living there, trying to figure out people would talk to me. Because this is the thing, like, I'm not going to force myself on you at all. Like, I will ask, and if you say, no, that's fine, I will do something else. So I wasn't even sure if, like, Roman Ashkali would be interested in talking to me. So I was, I was there. And so what I did was I would go around to various settlements and just rock up and say, hello, I'm a foreigner. Would you like to talk? Um, and I had a friend that was translating because I still didn't speak Serbian then. So he came to pick me up, and there was a guy, I'm going through... I had thrown out some trash in the dumpster and this guy was going through my trash. And so I told my friend, I said, I want to talk to this guy going through my trash and find out what, you know, what's going on. And so, so he asked me and I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm an American. I want to do work with, with Roman Ashkali and talk to them about, about what's going on. And he said, what are you going to give me? He said, am I going to get a house? Am I going to get water? Am I going to get money? 
Like, what are you going to give me if I help you? And I was really honest. I said, you're not going to get very much. I said, you know, personally, I will do whatever I can to help you, but you know, no one pays attention to us. You're certainly not going to get a house out of this. Like I'm not affiliated with an NGO. Um, working with me is not practically going to change your life. And it's certainly not going to improve it. In fact, if anything, I'm a bit of a hassle to have around because you're going to have to explain things to me. I'm really awkward socially, um, like vegetarian. Um, I mean, all these, all these things, like it, it's a lot to deal with a foreigner. Um, and he looked at me and he said, he said, you're the first person that's been honest with me. He said, all these people come by and they promise us all this stuff. If we answer a survey or if we do a TV interview, he said, it's all lies. He said, no one ever does anything for us. He said, and so the fact that you were very upfront about being unable to change our situation tells me that you're an honest person. He said, so I'm going to be honest with you. I'm actually the leader of a settlement and I'd like to invite you into the settlement to talk about doing research with us. So that was how I'm, so that's the thing. Be honest with folks and 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 really think about your positionality and 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 fess up to it and and have those conversations. And that's yeah, I, I think that goes a long way. Wow, that's amazing. The chance also the chances of running, I mean, uh, talking to a leader as one of your maybe first uh, communications with those people is really interesting. Yeah, and there's a lot, of, there's a lot of chance. Yeah, it's just who you run into and yeah, stuff just kind of works out. That's awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think, our, first of all, are you okay on time? We didn't uh, yeah. go over yeah. how long. Okay, great. great. What, what, however awesome. long you need me for, I'm fine. Wonderful. We just have a few more questions. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. um, uh, or is it Vanessa's question, actually? Oh. Uh, uh, yes, sorry. <laughs> okay, I think it is fine. Um, so uh, what courses actually are your favorite to teach? Because I actually remember you saying, or sorry, I saw in your profile that you teach from Anthropology 152, um, which is culture and humanity, all the way until graduate school to 667 biomedicine and culture. Yeah, so, so I, okay, the, the official party line is I love all my classes. I love teaching. <laughs> Thing. But there, there are a few that I'm just really proud of. Um, I, and I, I mean, I'll talk about two. Um, and, you know, also trying to get maybe some listeners interested in taking these classes. Um, but one is uh, anthropology of the body, right? And we look at like all these different ideas about the body. So, so we do stuff like, um, like plastic surgery and we do stuff on sperm donation. Um, and we do stuff on um, like gender reassignment surgery. Um, you know, we do, we do all of this stuff and, and like really look at these ideas around the body and, and what it means to be embodied people and, and, and how we come to these understandings. I really like that class. That's a lot of fun. Um, oh, we also do stuff on disability studies in that, which is really interesting. There's a, um, some, really good, some really good books. On. The other thing that I teach that I love is anthropology of sexuality. Um, and uh, so we look at issues of sexual oppression, right, and how in so much of kind of discourse today that we talk about, like we're, we're conscious about class difference a lot and how thinking to the 1% and the 99% and how there's how this there's kind of economic oppression and we're conscious of racial oppression, particularly now gender oppression with the Me Too movement. But there's very, but, but, but there's not nearly as much consciousness around sexual oppression, not just in terms of kind of straight gay, but really, but really complicating that. And the kind of difference, if you're into kink, for instance, or BDSM, um, even if you're heterosexual, 
there might be issues with talking about that or expressing that. Um, and so it's a class where we explore these different things and different kinds of sexuality um, around the world as well as in the US. Um, but it's also a real safe space for students to talk about, you know, the, whatever they want to. And so in this last class, it was great. They write their own papers. And um, there was a student who was doing a paper on BDSM. And I said, oh, do you know people? And he said, no, four students raised their hand and said, we can put you in our BDSM networks. Um, and so, so it's really nice that pretty much everything that we're talking about in the class, odds are at least one student in class knows about or has participated in. And so it's this really nice exchange of ideas um, and experiences. Um, and the papers are fantastic, as you can imagine they would be. So, um, so I really like that. And, and it really, it, just to be able to create a safe space, especially for queer students on, on campus, I'm a queer anthropologist, um, to have a place where they can, can talk about various issues um, within an academic context, I just think is really important. So I'm also really proud of that class. Oh, wow, I'm so proud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even a student of yours and I'm like, <laughs> So as a quick follow-up question. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go, 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 Corinne. <laughs> no, all you, Vanessa. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I was just going to ask, like, as a follow-up question, any tips to succeed in your class? Uh, tips to succeed. So, so what you do need to know if you take a class from me, there's a lot of reading. I will tell you that. The, the overwhelming response is I assign more reading than anybody else. Um, so do, yes, but it's good stuff. It's interesting. They are page turners. I do not assign the boring stuff because I don't like to read the boring stuff. Oh, like if it's not interesting, I don't, I don't care. So <laughs> it's good reading, but, the, but there is reading. So please do the reading and then talk. That's the other thing. Like a lot of it, I, I really, so most of my classes are writing intensive. So limited to 20 students. So pre-COVID, we would sit around a single table, um, <clears throat> kind of seminar format. Um, I'll do a little bit of lecture, but most of it is class discussion and people really getting to talk about what they think. So do the reading and come ready to talk and have a conversation and, and work these issues out. That's, yeah, that's how you get ahead. And don't be scared to talk to me and I, I'm, I will grade things in advance. I will look at your papers early. I'm happy to talk to students whenever and proposals, anything. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very hands-on. Awesome, thank you. Mm -hmm. And um, our next question is, what advice do you wish that you could give yourself when you're in your 20s, if you could give yourself advice? Uh, so yeah, I would say that it's all gonna work out. It's funny, I've been, so I moved into a new apartment. So I've got all my stuff out of storage. So I've like found my yearbooks from high school and stuff like that, which is a super scary moment to have. And I actually found letters that I wrote to myself back then. And I found one, you know, I wasn't sure whether I should go to Australia to get my PhD or not. And I was really stressing out and I didn't have a job and, and I was running out of money and what was going to happen. And it's so interesting to read that stuff now. And I, and I actually said in the letter, I hope that at some point in the future, I can look back at this and laugh and say it all worked out. And I was like, ah, it did. <laughs> Here you I know, am. And it worked out really well. Yeah, there were other bumps in the road, but overall, it was a good road. So, um, yeah, so I think, I think that that's what I would say. Awesome. That's something to look forward to, that it'll all work out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Corinne, did you want to ask this question or did you want to? All to you, Vanessa. I think I went a little out of order. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's okay. Sorry, we have a document uh, for all those who do not know. <laughs> um, 
But since you did talk about like doing research with your students, especially like for BDSM, is there any other types of research like that you're currently doing or that you want to engage students um, with? So mostly I'm interested in doing research here. Um, and because our department, and I think the college too, is very focused on the Asia Pacific region. I, I again, me being weird, do not work anywhere in the Asia Pacific region. Um, and so a lot of interest, particularly our graduate students, are outside of the regions that I work in. Um, but I'm happy to help students who like want to go to South Africa or want to go to Africa for that matter. Um, it's just so far there hasn't been a great deal of interest in that. Um, but like I said, I do encourage students to do local research, and yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely supportive of that and, and work from doing that. But I I don't local research. So I always say they're kind of like my spies, right? When they're going out, the research papers at the end of the year, I find out more about campus. One of my students wrote a paper on Adderall. It was fantastic. She gave me all these tips, how to spot papers that have been written on Adderall. It was wonderful. I learned so much. So <laughs> I love, I love my little spies. I send them out. They tell me all about campus and their little research papers and what's going on here. So uh, yeah, so I love that. I love that Staying too. in the know. Yeah, absolutely, because I am, you know, I, I think, it, I won't say a typical academic, because I don't want to paint all academics with this brush, but I do live in a relatively small box. I mean, I do all this global research, but in my personal life, it's, it's relatively small. I don't get out very much. Um, and so it's nice, like, reading the student papers, because they are out in the world very much. And so, yeah, they keep me, they keep me connected. No, I think we all feel the same during COVID-19. We're all in our little <laughs> bubbles and that's <Yep>. okay. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, thank you so much again for um, joining us today, uh, even for like 45 minutes. And yeah, Karen, did you any, want to say anything? Any any last comments or questions for us or anything, Mr. Setra? Am I saying that right? <laughs> thank yeah, you so yeah, much, that's so perfect. interesting. Yeah. No, listen, thank you so much for the conversation. It was lovely to chat. And um, yeah, thanks for reaching out and thinking of me for doing this. No, thank you. Thank you. Yes, right. thank you so much. This is so interesting. <laughs> You've lived such an interesting life. I mean, many people could not say a one 15th of the things that you've done that they've gotten to do in their lives. So it's really inspiring just to see, you know, when you like throw the net out and see what you catch and yeah. just go for a bunch of opportunities, a bit more difficult now with COVID, but hopefully there'll be more opportunities opening. In the yeah, future. hopefully, hopefully, yeah, things will change. But yeah, this is, this has been a big blow to, to anthropology. I mean, thankfully we can do some things online, but the stuff that I do, I mean, yeah, you, you, you just, you can't. So connecting yeah. with people, yeah, a little yeah. different through technology than through yeah. in person and living with them and working with them for multiple years even. So really yeah, amazing absolutely. work. Yeah, but we're really glad for your enthusiasm and yeah, thank you again. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much. Right. Thank, thank you, you. we'll be in touch. Okay, Bye. great, thanks, bye. Have a great day. Thank you too.